One of the great challenges that I thought I would do this, this uh, Mother's Day and Father's Day is related to uh, the idea of parenting. I've been uh, teaching on a parenting class on light, in the life groups on Wednesday nights for most of the term for the year. And there's, I thought, well, usually we talk about moms or we talk about dads and we talk about their qualities and what they need to do. But this year I thought I would do something different and talk about the whole idea of parenting. So as you walked in this morning, you can see blueprints on the walls and in the foyer and on stage here. And the reason for that is that at the heart of what we are doing here this morning is this idea of creating a blueprint out of the scriptures for the idea of parenting. Now, I want to just, again, mention one of the most predominant things that I want to propose to you in this blueprint is that modeling is the most powerful thing that parents can do. But it's also the most powerful thing that non-parents can do. If you're single, I hope that you will see that this blueprint reflects characteristics that you can model to other people's kids or that you can model to other people. Uh, So in some respects, there's a universal element to this blueprint because we're raising kids to be after God and to living lives that reflect his character in life. So whether you're planning on having kids, you don't have kids, whether you're grandparents, I think the relevancy of this is true for all of us. But what I want to do is pick on a couple of passages that tend to be one of these kind of debated passages. And today I'm going to focus on this passage out of Proverbs 22, Train up a child in the way they should go, and even when he is old, he will not, he or she will not depart from it. And then we're going to jump into our series uh, next week on God and homosexuality for four weeks as we look at some of those relevant issues in our culture. And then in Father's Day, we're going to pick the other half of this, and that is Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it from him. So I have uh, sort of almost accidentally... I'm entitling this, How to Raise a Fool. And so if you come back for Father's Day, we're going to talk about, hey, what's the best way to raise a fool? Obviously, I'm uh, trying to state a positive in a negative way, and we're going to try to look at what we don't want our kids to become uh, based on what this passage is implying. So we're going to take a little break from Romans and kind of step into this a little bit. The whole idea is that we want to talk about nine different values that belong to this biblical blueprint that I believe come out of this text um, and help us maybe get our hands around some things uh, that sometimes we just miss because of the busyness of life. One of the things we discovered on Wednesday night when it comes to parenting is that one of the traps because of busyness and exhaustion and multitasking, all kinds of things, is that parents usually get trapped in the process of simply fixing bad behavior rather than training kids to be godly citizens. It's easy just to like, look, stop your yelling, quit messing around, stop it, because we're trying to stop the chaos, as opposed to equipping and training our kids for the longevity of life, what they will become when they get older. And so frankly, we could evaluate our own adult lives, many of us, whether we're parents or not, based on the things that we see in this blueprint, and I want to sort of take us through that journey to figure out what that's going to look like. Now, obviously, one of the problems with this particular text is that people immediately have sort of have two different things that go on in their mind. Uh, If you look at like a commentary, you will see that one commentary will talk about, well, you need to train them in the way that they should go because kids aren't smart enough to figure this out on their own. And so the idea is, parents, you ought to have wisdom, both from the scriptures and experience, to teach kids how to get to where they need to go. 
The other more current interpretation often tends to be this idea of train up a child in the way that they're bent. Because every kid is different and they're wired different, they have different personalities, so what you would necessarily do or train one child is different than the other. And to some degree, I would say that in a sense, both are correct, but both have temptations that are problematic. The parent who says, well, okay, I understand and I really feel comfortable with the idea, I'm going to tell my kids what to do, when to do it, how to do it, is that they never stop doing that. So when they get to be teenagers and in their 20s, you still got parents who are trying to tell their kids what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and what it's going to look like, and that doesn't work after a while. It's great when kids are preschool and they're elementary school and sometimes in this teen years they still need strong direction but at some point you can't be a sergeant general that's going to tell your adult kids what they're going to do how they're going to do it when it's going to, and what it's going to look like on the other hand the problem is is that if you just sort of uh, this so I would call the misinterpretation of this idea of well you got to train them the way they're bent is that you get this, this sense that, well, I'm going to just let my kid express himself any way that he feels bent at the time, regardless of the chaos. And our, our, our schools are wreaking the habit of parents who have no clue how to parent, and the kids are like wild animals, tearing things apart and hurting each other and saying all kinds of ridiculous things out of their mouth, because parents are going, well, this is kind of the way they're bent, so I'm just going to let them do it. Probably the epitome of that I've heard from an adult perspective is, and this usually doesn't come from Christians, but well, I'm just going to let my kids pick whatever religion they want to. I'm not going to dictate anything to them, which is like spiritual suicide. And yet it shows that people's perspective of religion is so myopic and superficial that they don't even care. They can pick whatever they want, and to them it doesn't even matter. So the idea of this is powerful, and the question is, how do we begin to look at this? Well, verse 6, by itself, doesn't necessarily give us answers. One of the things that you will hear, and if you've been in any kind of educational things about studying the Bible, one of the things that you often have heard, or may have heard, that when you're studying the book of Proverbs, context doesn't mean anything, or it means a lot less than what it does in other passages of Scripture. Now, I've always pushed back on that a little bit, and the reason why it comes up that way is because when you look through the Proverbs, they will have these dual statements that tend to look very different. The, the subjects seem to change almost every other verse. They'll talk about righteousness here and family, and then they'll talk about debt, and then they'll talk about righteousness, and it, it's kind of like, I don't, all this stuff is changing subjects so fast, you really can't depend on the context. Well, while you have to be careful in Proverbs about context, I believe context is really important even in Proverbs because I believe the Spirit of God tends to link different things together that we wouldn't do it naturally, but in his genius, he knows there's relationships between these that we don't often naturally put together. So as we look at this parenting, the question is, what is it supposed to look like? Well, I believe the context of Proverbs 22, 1 through 11, help us paint the pictures of the blueprint of what does it mean to train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are older, they won't depart from it. This is not a guaranteed promise that if we sit down and jam enough verses into their head, they will automatically be a Christian and everything will be happy ever after. That's not what this is. What it is saying is, it's, and I like to talk of it this way, 
If you will train up a child in your value system, if you will model and communicate a number of different things that you value, they will glob onto that and that will become their value system when they get older. And I want to look at that blueprint that this passage gives to us to give you an idea, not only an idea what, how we should be living as adults and as parents, but also how do we, what's the purpose of training? What's the purpose of discipline? What's the purpose of why we're raising our kids in the first place? And I want to, can't encourage you enough that modeling is absolutely indispensable in here. And the second is, this isn't just a guarantee that this is exactly the way the kids will turn out. So we have nine characteristics that I want to talk about. And I'm trying to sink them down to a word, but I want you to look at the verse. The first one is character. Verse one makes this statement. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. The first principle is character. Character over worldly success and reputation does mean something. So when you have a kid, there, I don't think there's ever a time that's too early to teach kids these different values. They may not understand it and parents don't usually have the patience to say, well, I'm going to train them in things that they don't know. It's like language. You know, one of the challenges, I wish I knew Spanish inside and out and fluently like my wife does. But the hard thing is, well, teach your kids Spanish when they're born. Just talk to them. Just, but it's very hard when only one parent knows the language because they have to say it in Spanish, then they have to say it in English. And it's very difficult to get that ingrained. It's the same way with these principles is that it's, one, it's really easy to think about this, but often discipline and training ends up just being troubleshooting. It's just fixing immediate problems rather than teaching beyond it. So the question then becomes is, what are you known for? What is your reputation? And this is not just what does everybody think about you, but what is the intentional process in which you are trying to make an impact in other people's lives? Now, you'd say, well, what's the difference? Well, if you have a broken identity when you're growing up, the opinions of everybody can make you like a jigsaw puzzle. You don't know whether you're going this way or that way or whatever. But if you have a reputation of being a bully, that's different. And so the idea is, is, what is it that we're trying to train our kids to do? Well, I believe character, that the idea of having a good name is more important than how much money they make. Now, the issue for us is that we always tend to reinterpret that. Wouldn't it be cool if they had a good name and made lots of money? Now, there's nothing wrong with people who have the skills who know how to make lots of money. That's not my point. But what we do is, well, we would spend way more time teaching them how to make money than we will about having a good name. I mean, the school system, I don't have to be in it to know it because my wife is. It used to be when I was growing up that if you got in trouble, it was really big trouble when you got home. I mean, parents would side with the teachers because they don't want their kids stepping out of line. What's the format today? Well, we got a number of teachers here. I, I'll bet you any, well, not any amount of money. I'll bet you anything that what happens today is parents will always defend their kids even when, the, when they're caught on camera and they're proven to be wrong, that their kids are out of line. When you start throwing desks over and pounding on another kid and saying things to other people and adults and teachers that are just like verbal garbage, the parents will still defend them. It had to be someone else's fault. It had to be somebody else who provoked them. And at the heart of this thing is character. 
This sense that a good name is much preferred than how much money they make. And it's a struggle. But I believe that one's driven by fear, the other one's driven by faith. The second value is that of respect. And I want you to notice what verse 2 says. The rich and the poor have a common bond, but the Lord is the maker of them all. So there's people in different stratas and social and economic areas of life. Some have got, everybody's been given gifts, not everybody has the same opportunity. But the idea here is it doesn't matter whether a person's rich or they're poor, what we need to teach our kids is every person has equal value because they are all created by one maker. Now, you might think that's automatic. It's not. There are all kinds of kids, and they are in elementary school and grade school. Some of them think they're way better than everybody else, and some, people, some of the kids, their identity is so crushed, they don't think they have any value at all. And one of the things that's tricky about this is that this has to start with mom and dad. This has to start with some adults in their life that are learning, haven't got it perfected, nobody has it perfected, but are learning how their, sense of, their own sense of identity is anchored in Christ. And that they can communicate that sense of value to their children. Because we live in a world where there's profound sense of discrimination and prejudice, and it really, there's, there, everything is game for it. It doesn't matter whether you're just talking about skin color or whatever kind of thing, There's all kinds of reasons for people to struggle with this. Either they don't see their own sense of value or they don't see the value of someone else because they're different than them. And so the the issue is that sometimes life feels unfair because why should they be rich and me not? And there's some people, some adults who try to raise their kids that they're going to make it (laughs) and be as wealthy as the wealthiest people in our country. Um, And that's their whole focus. A lot of their praise or their criticisms is built around the idea of performance and how well they do, and there's no other encouragement based on simply who they are. And so there's a tremendous struggle that in terms of this, that we have to see the value of every person. Now, that may mention a little bit later on, but one of the interesting questions that I asked our parenting class on Wednesday night is, how is it that you teach our children their sense of inherent value without them getting a swelled head. And even more sense, how do you do that with also helping them realize that they're sinners and need a savior? And I believe that there's a sense of value of being created in the image of God, but there's no one who's good. So you have to balance this sense of, hey, you have tremendous value, but we also have to realize that you need a savior. And that becomes part of this whole training process, and it begins with a sense of respecting the value of every human being. Now, just in case you miss, how does that affect me as an adult, whether I'm a parent or not? Well, how you talk about other people and how you talk to people makes a huge difference. So when mom and dad think they're behind closed doors and they're arguing over somebody, And they're name-calling and using descriptive names like someone's an idiot and they're stupid and they're a moron or whatever. 
the kids hear that, and then they say, well, okay, then it's okay that I can devalue somebody by calling them names that is just my opinion about things. And so parents have to model this. Adults have to model this. Now, there's lots of families that are, that are blended and broken and all kinds of things. All you can do is control what you do. You can't control what your spouse does. But you, we have to find better ways to train up our children with a value system that is going to be anchored in terms of godly principles and what God wants them to be. So respect, treating every person with value, regardless of how different they are, is critical. The third one is morality. The statement in verse three is, the prudent sees the evil, or sees evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Morality assumes a sense that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. In our culture, that's way more fluid. And if, since we've had our own kids in the school system, we know that the school systems do, do not always line up with our value system. Now, I'm not making any suggestion in terms of whether you should have them there or not. The issue is, when they're hearing a lot of different voices around them, when they're hearing a lot of different information from their friends and other environments, morality has to be set by the parents. They have to have a sense that there are things that are evil and there are other things that are good. And so the idea is, is not everything is right to do. Now, I believe, notice that the statement says that the naive pass on. They don't pay any attention to this. And as the statement would be, uh, the naive pass on and are punished for it. Or they have to face the consequences of doing things wrong. Now, I'm a big advocate that parents should use consequences to teach their kids these values. You can talk to a kid till their face, your face turns blue, and some will get it, and others it'll just pass right over them, and they'll just keep going. But we don't want to raise kids who think that they're entitled to get away and set their own rules in life because other people aren't going to let them do that. I mean, the idea here is that they pass on, and they get punished, or they pay the penalty for it, and that in the real world, there are consequences to the things that they do. Now, where, does, where this really rubs hard is when parents raise their kids and there's never any consequences for anything that they do. You know, they'll, they'll talk to them, they'll do things, and there's nothing wrong with talking to them. But if kids don't learn that there's actual real consequences, they could be in some serious trouble when they get older because they think that the world will act the way mom and dad did and they'll let me get away with whatever I want to. And I believe consequences are a significant tool in the hands of parents. It has to be appropriate to their kids. But parents who spend too much time bailing their kids out of difficult choices and difficult circumstances or consequences, I think are doing a lot of damage to their ability to learn what right and wrong is. And so at the heart of this is that there has to be some boundaries for kids. Parents want to be their kid's best friend but not at the expense of being parents and setting the boundaries. Is that easy? Nope, it's not. But it's part of the reality of what we need to deal with. The fourth one is humility. Notice verse four. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And I want you to notice that he puts humility and fear of the Lord in the same place. 
You have sort of a basic human humility in relationship to one another, but that's not where this is starting. It's starting with humility and the fear of the Lord. Those are the two that have to come together. Because if we don't have humility before the Lord, and we're acknowledging his lordship and we fear him, then all the humility out here isn't going to make that much difference. It might make them a very polite person, but it's not raising them in a way that anchors them to, the, to our relationship with Christ. And so the idea here is probably what you're assuming I've been saying the whole time, but let me make sure it's clear here, and that is parents are responsible for anchoring their families in the gospel and for spiritually creating an environment and integrating spiritual truth into the fabric of their family culture. It's not the church that has the responsibility of raising, spiritually training your kids. We are the support system and a pretty critical one, but parents are on the front line of saying, here's God's truth. Now, you know the problem of all talk and no show. You can't talk about truth if you're not going to live truth. And it doesn't have to be parents. I mean, kids pick up on pastors and staff and other parents who, who talk about being Christians and then talk and act in ways that don't sound like being Christians. And one of the critical, I think one of the most powerful two values in all of the scriptures is this sense of humility and fearing the Lord. There's almost nothing more powerful than that when you get someone who's absolutely devoted and anchored to the, the, the person of Christ and, and humble before him because that will translate in how I treat other people around me. It becomes almost impossible it needs to be done formally and organically. And as much as we would love to solve all your problems and be able to do it for you, you know that you're only here a little bit during the week. It can't solve all those issues. And so it's okay, dads, to be taking spiritual, intentional process of trying to teach spiritual realities to your kids. When you're making decisions, it's not about what's most prudent or financially sound. It's also about what does God want us to do here? What, what do you think Jesus would want us to do in making this decision? What's going to honor the Lord in terms of us doing what we're going to do? And it's not, we don't have to apologize for making decisions that way. But don't assume just because you're making a decisions that kids understand that this is what the Lord wants. You've got to tell them that. So humility and fearing the Lord has to be modeled, it has to be integrated in the whole process of things. Then look at verse five. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life, which is 423. But this particular idea in verse five, thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. Kids don't know everything. You do, we do know that, right? We can't assume that they'll just figure it out. I, my dad, I, I love my dad, and he was great. I, my whole perspective of dad has changed radically over the years. Uh, I, for some of you that don't know me as well, I never thought I could please my dad growing up, so I developed a real anger problem because I thought I had to do things perfectly, and if I did it perfectly, dad would never find anything wrong with what I did. Well, my dad was kind of like, wow, this is super. You did great, but if you really wanted to do it really better, you could have done this. And I just went, well, I guess I failed because it wasn't good enough. So I developed a real perfectionistic thing, and I was kind of angry at my dad forever because I wanted his approval and didn't think I could get it. Well, now I realize he was 
trying to be helpful. He, <laughs> Dad wasn't near as bad as I thought he was when he was growing up. But the idea is, is that the way I was wired and bent, that I needed a certain kind of encouragement, I didn't communicate that to him, and he just kept doing what he thought he was doing. But he didn't really take the time. He couldn't teach me any spiritual truths, per se, because he wasn't a Christian for 99% of his life. And the only thing he taught me, like, when it came to money, and we'll talk about that in a minute, is he handed me a book when I was 18 and said, read this. And it's still sitting on my shelf. I read a part of it, and... But there's, there was no context in where he had developed a relationship where he's talking about this with me. So when he gave me the book, I thought, well, this is just an excuse to not talk to me, and I just put it away. So he just kind of thought I'd figure it out by myself. And, you know, I remember like 10 years later, I talked to my mom, and I said, oh, yeah, I decided I was going to take this course. I think it was, I don't know if it was James Ramsey or something else. He goes, oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I just didn't know where you were at. I said, like, what do you mean by that? Well, I didn't know if you knew how to handle money or anything else. I said, well, like, why wouldn't you do that when I was growing up? Like, why are you asking now? I mean, it, just, it was just a weird conversation. But the danger is parents assume that kids will just figure it out. Don't do that. They won't just figure it out because someone else will come in and teach them a different way to do it. The, the sixth one is one that you might expect in this journey, but if you have to skip over verse six, because that's our focal point, look at verse seven. The rich rules over, rules over the poor, and the borrower is a servant to the lender. And so the idea of dealing with debt, uh, dealing with stewardship, I think is, you start as early in life as possible and teach kids about money and finances. I think that's what, it's, what the statement is really saying, and I think it feeds exactly into what this means is train up your kid. There's a spiritual dimension to life, but there's also some really practical things in life that sometimes parents never get around to because they're too busy. And I think this is a clear responsibility of what the text is saying is that this needs to be done, and you've got to start it. You can give them an allowance. I don't care whether you give it for free and they do chores for free or you pay them to do chores. I don't care. But they need to be taught the value of work and they need to be taught the value of handling money, however that does. And I know many of you do that. Let me squeal on our own family. Uh, I remember my dad was a different generation. And so sometimes this is hard to figure out. I remember my dad called me, we were living in Oregon one time, and he asked me if I would send him a document. I can't remember what it was. But I said, sure, that'd be fine. I got it and I mailed it to him. About two weeks later, I got a, mail of, a letter back in the mail from my dad and I thought, well, this is weird. So I opened it up. There was a clean piece of paper folded, you know, so you couldn't see what was in it. And I opened it up, and what was in it was a stamp for the, what it cost me to mail the letter to him. And the first thing I thought is, you jerk. I can't even do something for you without you paying me back. You can't even be indebted to your own son for doing something nice for you. You have to pay me back. That was my first thought. And then I kind of backed off and went, well, that's my dad's generation. They don't want to be in debt to anybody, even their own family, so he's going to send me a stamp to pay for the stamp that I sent the, the stuff to him for. I love my kids, but they're a different generation. So don't tell them this, but anyway... Uh, but um, my, my son is, 
kind of an interesting character. And I bet you over the last three years, probably a half a dozen times, he said, Dad, you know, I need my birth certificate because I need it for something. Would you send it to me? And I'll pay you for the shipping if you could overnight it to me. Okay, good. Do I see the money? Of course not. <laughs> I can go back three years and say, Ryan, here, you know, here's some thing. I, would you mind paying me back for this? Sure. Would you do that? Yeah, sure. Never paid it back. Ryan, and he did it most of the time. He'd say, Dad, could you do this and I'll pay you back. So I did it. Did I get paid back? Not at all. So you have different generations who look at this differently. Now, I don't know. I, my son is very busy. He's got a lot of stuff on his plate and doing stuff. I could easily see him making that statement and then completely forgetting about it so it's not like he's intentionally trying to rip his dad off like that could ever happen. Um, but... What you do in life builds a certain kind of name for yourself. And I can live with it. But it's, you start developing habits that are going to leak over to your other friends. Now, maybe that, you know, his generation, maybe they don't care. They just figure, hey, I'm entitled to do this. I'll pay you back if I don't. Who cares? Nobody cares. I don't, I don't know. But the idea is, is that what you do and don't do, especially after you say you're going to do things, leaves you with a certain kind of reputation in what you're dealing with. So everybody handles these things differently. We have to learn what works and what's responsible. But this whole idea, even little debt, money has a way of destroying more families than anything else. And so stewardship is valuable. Then when you get to verse 8, you have this statement, and I'll call it sinfulness, but you'll notice that verse 8 says, He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. And so the idea of this is that kids, it goes right along with the idea that there's right and wrong, but they need to know that certain behavioral patterns and habits and ways of doing things, if they're going to be if it's iniquity and it's sinful and whatever, it's going to reap stuff in their life that they might blame everyone else for their situation, but it's their own fault. And we live in a culture that has mastered the ability to make excuses even when it's my own fault. We blame other people. We blame the system. We blame everything. And the idea here is, hey, if you're going to sow and act in certain ways, then there's going to be certain consequences to it. And so we have to learn new patterns of way of doing things, and that has to happen with adults. They have to model those things. And how parents talk about problem solving, how they deal with challenges, will say a lot to their kids as to whether they're taking responsibility or they're just blaming everybody else for their problems. And I think it's always helpful for us to take stock to say, look, am I blaming, every, am I blaming my spouse? Am I blaming my siblings? Am I blaming people for where I'm at in life? Because at times, life is unfair, and it's difficult. But the consequences of the path of certain things are going to... Re and parents have to have the courage at times to say, look, you keep doing this, and you're going to run into problems. It's okay to say no. The eighth one is generosity. Notice the text. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of the food to the poor. Teaching kids how to be generous, I think, is critical. Elise Brunk, who wrote for Christian Parenting, talked about the day that she found her, her son, who was four-year-old, 
trying to give his sister, who was two years old, uh, a drink of water, but ended up spilling it all over his sister. And uh, mom jumped in and was kind of after him, like, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing that. Look at the mess you made and all this kind of stuff and just kind of ragged on her son for making a mess. And then a little while later, she kind of went, wow, like he's trying to help his sister and be generous and I jumped all over him for it. Why? Well, because we tend to troubleshoot and discipline based on how inconvenient life gets for us and the chaos that's going around us and we're trying there to fix problems rather than train children. And I get it, she's tired, she's exhausted, but we just need to know whatever we model, whatever values we integrate into the substructure of their emotional hearts and their minds, that's what they'll tend to do when they get older. And so later on she goes back and she says, she got down with her four-year-old and said, you know what, I apologize. You're trying to help your sister, I jumped all over you, I was wrong. Gave him a big hug and a kiss. Said, I want you to learn how to be generous and help your sister as much as possible. And sometimes we as parents need to kind of get on one knee and apologize because being transparent and genuine about our inconsistencies can be really helpful. And then the last one is purity and grace. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. You know, it's interesting that purity and grace are in the same sentence. We're not going to do a big exegetical thing on it. But the idea here, I believe, is that purity and grace are one of the most profound characteristics of who God is. And as you move through it, you'll see that it can have a profound impact on people. Elisa Morgan, who wrote Upside, uh, The Upside of an Upside-Down Life, uh, actually at one point became uh, MOPS International Director um, and... Uh, she tells the story of her own childhood, that her parents were divorced early in life. Her mom, she, they got sort of stuck with her mom, and her mom was kind of a raging alcoholic. And instead of mothering the kids, the kids had to kind of mother and run interference to, to help mom because she was completely unable to pull it off. There was a few times at Christmas and Easter where the kids sort of became the center of attention, but the weight of all this other problem suffocated any of the good that she might have been doing for them. When she was asked to consider leading Mops International, a vital ministry that nurtures mothers, she went straight to her knees, then to the therapist, and said, how in the world could I ever do it when I never really experienced this myself? Then when she got in the room with other moms and realized the pressure and the stress and the confusion and the chaos that they'd experienced, she said, well, maybe we can identify together in this journey. My grace is sufficient for you in what at times seems to be the greatest privilege in life and yet one of the most impossible tasks that we face. But I believe that Proverbs 22, if you don't try to interpret verse 6 in isolation and you look at what's surrounding it, there's a whole blueprint of value systems that God says, here's, here's some critical things that your kids need to see you model and train them in. Some of them say may are completely familiar to us because we understand it. Others may not be so much. But in the heart of this, there is this great opportunity for us to be speaking into our kids. Maybe not in a perfect way but in a genuine way that helps them in this journey to not just grow up to be great citizens, but spiritual people who have their lives anchored to humility and fear of the Lord and who can impact other people's lives, whether they're married or not married, whether they're single 
or married or whatever it happens to be, that all of these become blueprint for, for Christians. But how much more vital it is when parents catch this vision, not just to troubleshoot immediate problems, but to have a vision of this is the kind of man that I want my son to be. This is the kind of daughter that I want to at least do my responsibility to model, model and speak into their life. You and I both know that they get to a certain point and they all make their choices. This isn't a guarantee that this is exactly what will happen. But when we get to Father's Day, I'll show you what it means to raise a fool and it might make a little more sense. Great privilege, tough ministry. And yet one of the greatest ministries and privileges that we will not only have when they're preschool or grade school or even high school or college. At some point, we stop telling them what, how, when, and what it's going to look like, and we start becoming disciple makers, life coaches who speak into their life to help remind them of hopefully what they've heard for a lifetime. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue this journey in life, we need to be reminded that your son came to this earth and didn't do his own will, but he submitted with humility to your will, even to the point of death. And for those of us that have discovered life in Christ by receiving Jesus into our life and expressing faith in your promise, in the person of your son. You now give us the opportunity to model a way of life that can change from what it used to be because of your spirit that indwells us and your word that you've given to us. It may go completely against our impulses and our instincts and how we feel, but as we live by faith, we can learn a new way of life. We can break the chains of a, a legacy of family issues that begin our kids on a journey that will help them flourish and discover your will and your blessing in their life. Father, help us to have the courage to be those kind of parents, to be those kind of grandparents, to be those kind of teachers in the school and in our Sunday school, to be those kinds of friends that move alongside others, whether they're single or married or have kids, to be these kind of adults. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.